Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today reminds us that carers selflessly give so much of themselves to the well-being of others. It is to these unsung heroes that we dedicate the last podcast of the year, the podcast for this holiday season. And my guest today is Jerry Lynn Baumblatt. Jerry Lynn, you're very, very welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be speaking with you today. And I know that one of your interests is family caregiving. So I wanted to explore that straight off the bat. Why are you interested in that? What's the story behind it? I grew up in a medical family and I really started off focusing on how to help clinicians better educate patients, not just during the clinical encounter, but really using asynchronous communication to help educate and support people and make decisions between clinical encounters. So when they got back together, they could have a better conversation. But I kept finding these situations where there was a person missing from the room. People were making a decision about breast cancer, prostate cancer. Their family member and partner often had more to say about it and sometimes was even more stressed out about it than they were. And then in my own experience, my dad became ill. I was watching my mom care for him and she's a nurse. She lives to care give, but we really started worrying more about her than about him as this went on for two years, three years, four years. And as I started helping my mom and the rest of us did more and more with that, as my dad's care needs changed, I really found that I wasn't doing so great either and that I was having a hard time focusing at work. You know, I wasn't taking care of myself, but my mom in particular really had some serious situations where she'd stay too long advocating for him at a care setting and she'd drive home tired and be in a car crash. Just all these things started happening where I was like, you know, I know what my dad's trajectory is, but I actually started worrying we were going to lose my mom before my dad due to the caregiving stressors and challenges. And I really started feeling how it was affecting me day to day as a secondary caregiver. And I started saying, we have to rethink this. It's not just the patient-clinician relationship. There's more than just those two people. There's the family's circle of care, their friends, or in even the worst cases, people who don't have a caregiver and how are they going to do? So I really started looking at that much more closely. And in some ways, I'm embarrassed to say it really took me having some profound experiences and watching some of my own friends lose their homes, their jobs, even their marriages to caregiving and and trying to do right by somebody in their family. That's A very moving story. And Jerry, how did it end? Uh, Did things get resolved in any way? No, I think that's the interesting thing is that caregiving never really ends. I mean, for me, I was traveling and for work a lot and running back and forth, you know, to come help my mom as my dad had different issues. And then after he passed away, my mom started having her own health issues. And she has much more uh, stability, but when things are bad, they're, they're very bad. So she's fine, she's fine, and then suddenly things are not good at all. And so I think the idea is not to really as something that starts and ends. And we know now that increasingly people do serial caregiving 
where, you know, you care for a partner or a child or they do sandwich caregiving, where they're caring for more than one person, where they're caring for more than one adult. And especially as our demographics change, it's really, I think, an ongoing issue where you just see more and more people caregiving and that it may kind of go on and off into more or less intense periods. But it's really something that we're doing all of on and off throughout our lives. And I think it's something that clinicians need to be more aware of. Frankly, workplaces and employers need to be aware of. At the time, I mean, I work in healthcare. So I was working at an organization where I was literally creating resources for patients and families dealing with heart failure. Well, my own dad was in and out of the hospital with heart failure. And I was recognizing that my own organization didn't really know how to help and support me. So it's kind of infuses every aspect of people's lives. Yes, I recognize the scenario. And as a family doctor, I see it all the time. Somebody who you think is the patient and you're focusing very much on them and the whole interest of of the consultation is on that particular person. What you don't recognize is the person sat right beside them. It has probably got greater needs in some ways than the person who has the cancer or the diabetes or whatever it happens to be. Jerry, what do you think is the answer? How do we make this better? Well, I think it's really about, as with most everything in medicine, changing the culture of care, but also changing the culture at work where so many people are working and caregiving and can't stop working because especially in the US, they need that job for their health insurance and their income and to be able to support the people that they're caring for. So that's certainly a big part of it. We need to identify who the family caregiver or caregivers are. I work in healthcare and I think it took me about three years to recognize that I was also a family caregiver. And what happens is we need to get to people sooner and really build awareness about this. Because by the time you're three years in, you're kind of in this chaotic situation. You think it's unique to your situation or your family, and it's not. Everybody goes through it. And by the time you realize that you're a caregiver, you don't have time to stop going and say, oh, let me figure out how to educate myself and connect with resources. You really need a way to help people identify much sooner and then recognize what kind of caregiving they're doing because it's so incredibly diverse. Are you caring for a partner? Are you caring for a parent? Are you caring for somebody with dementia? Like these things are very different challenges. And so what we really need to do is as clinicians, as a care community, help people recognize that you don't understand that you're entering into this new role. And we need to help you understand the role because right now it might be okay or a little bit stressful, but it could get crazy and it probably will get crazy. And we want to make sure we understand how to support the type of caregiving you're doing and the person or people that you're caring for. One of the reasons that so many women are caregivers, and there's an increasing number of men just out of sheer volume now, I think, too, is that it's socially more acceptable for like me to help give my mom or dad a bath or 
care for them or change their bandages or touch them in certain ways that it might not be. And so caring for a partner versus a child versus somebody of the opposite sex or same sex, all of those things can make a huge difference in when you're going to hit a breaking point and kind of come up against some line where you're like, you know what? I'm not comfortable doing this, or I'm simply not able to do this for this person. Sometimes it's a physical limitation. My mom is a nurse and she knows how to move people, but she would try and move my dad on her own. And she almost broke her hip doing that by herself. And then I'm not medically trained. And sometimes if you ask me to help change a drain or a bandage, for me, that's an incredibly scary thing to have to try and help with. And it kind of shuts me down. So everybody has their different relationships and the different types of care people need. And we need to really assess people, figure out what those things are and give them the training and support that they need so that they don't burn out and they don't really come up against that wall where they're like, I just can't do this anymore. Or they also become, to your point, patients. They're really kind of second order patients where they can be injured or become so stressed or stop taking care of themselves to the point that they actually become as much of or a more serious patient than the one they're caring for. Okay, so I'm going to challenge you a little bit on this. Right now, today, probably at this very hour, a family will be going in to get a diagnosis for mom and dad, let's say dementia, let's say heart failure or, or something similar. And they will be walking into that doctor's room mom, dad, possibly a daughter, possibly a son, what one piece of advice would you give them as they enter that room, knowing what you know about how their world is about to unfold for them? I think that they need to understand that this is going to impact their lives and their relationships in ways that they can't predict. And that Yes, they need to make plans and they need to figure out what the next steps are, but they also need to know that there's a very good chance that those things will all need to change. Sometimes they won't need to change or be reassessed for many weeks or many months. And other times it turns on a dime and you think you have a plan in place. You think, oh, this is the best care setting or this is the best way forward to help support our family. And sometimes within 24 or 48 hours, something's changed and it's all turned on its head and you have to be ready to react. And and you can't possibly know all the things that you need to know. So you need to recognize that you have a healthcare team that can help you, but that that chaos is, is kind of normal and in some ways to be expected and that You have to kind of keep coming back and let's kind of replan and reassess and make sure that you have what you need and get as much of it in place as we can. But I think everybody just kind of looks around and think, oh, well, nobody's having this crazy chaotic experience that I'm having. This is unique and it's just not unique. And caregiving, we usually think of as, oh, we took them to the hospital and now we have this this plan or we got them home, the hard part's over, but that's usually just the beginning. And most caregiving, average or median duration is about five years. And if it's something like dementia, it's actually more like years. And people are not prepared for thinking 
about how long that's going to go on and how much it might change over time and really impact your family and your relationships. It's hard, isn't it? It's really, really hard. And the experience, the emotion that I often have to contend with as a doctor in this situation is guilt. The guilt of the person who said, I married him or her for better or for worse. What do you mean? I need help. I can do it. I can fix it. I'll be there for them. This is what I signed up to. And of course, from that, it all begins to unravel because once you you, you assume that mindset, you're assuming this superhuman ability to deal with what is, as you're describing, a very difficult and long-term problem. Yeah. And I feel like part of the, the issue is, is there, there are a lot of ways to address this. There are some great programs. For example, Intermountain has a program. They probably cannot do this during COVID times, but where instead of trying to educate family members on discharge, during the hospital stay, they ask if any of the family members want to be part of the care team. And they actually help train them in hands-on care. And if somebody has heart failure, they might help measure fluids and start to learn all those things. So when they go home, you don't get this deer in the headlights. Oh my gosh, I don't know what. And I'm so, they're so scared also that they're going to, you know, hurt this person or do something wrong. And so start to build that confidence and that self-efficacy. So there, there are great ways to do it, but I think we also need to do it outside of the acute setting. You know, we really need to start. Even my doctor should be asking me, I almost think as part of my regular exam or check-in is to say, are you caring for anybody? And what is that like? And what do you need help with? Because at least in the States, I'm not on the same insurance plan as my mom or as my adult siblings. We're, we're all on different health plans where they're not necessarily interested in how I'm doing as a family caregiver. What's my health? Do I have the resources I need to continue to eat healthy, get exercise, do my doctor's appointments? When my cousin was caring for her adult father, her adult sibling, and her husband were all seriously ill, and she was helping all of them. When I saw her at her dad's funeral, she had gained a lot of weight. She did not look good. And she told me she now had AFib. And she's like, oh, I can't take care of myself. It's all, this is all I'm caregiving for everybody else. And I think my life is being cut short from it. I think you've touched on two really important things there. And the first one I would frame as a set play. Now in soccer, there's a, there's a thing called a set play where you imagine that if somebody goes on a football field, they know exactly where they have to be on that particular pitch in order to be in the right place, to make the right move, to get the right result. And what you're describing when somebody's having the diagnosis, they're in an acute sector or in fact in the in the ambulatory sector, when a diagnosis has been made, you, the manager, if, it, if you want to call it that, as in the doctor, can see how this is going to unfold and you create a set play. And one of those set plays is to predict this is not going to go well if we don't get somebody as a partner in this person's care and make them part of the care team in the way that you've described. That's the set play. You don't deal with the crisis. You deal with the situation as it's unfolding. And the second thing 
is the question that you so astutely identified when doctors are speaking to someone. Are you caring for someone? Yeah, and I I think that when we're not taking that into account when we're talking to individuals about their own care is I I think actually in many ways the pandemic has made this very clear for maybe people who didn't see it before that when we're having video calls with people and we're going into their homes or we're having video visits for telemedicine you start to see into their home and you start to recognize what people are dealing with in terms of caring for others. And it's often much more intensive than we think, and it's often much more intensive than they think. I know the Atlas of of Caregiving, they did a study where they actually fitted people with cameras that were taking pictures, I think, of what they were doing almost like every 30 seconds, estimate the amount of time they were spending on caregiving. And when they compared it to the data from like the cameras and the wearables and the other things that they gave them, they found it was much more intensive and much more time than even the, the family caregivers themselves were assessing. And then you add to that these issues with problems sleeping, I think is huge. Some of the studies on interrupted and poor sleep are ridiculous. And we know the effect that that has on your ability to work and be productive, but also on your health and, and diabetes and and a number of other things. But I think a lot of caregivers only get about five or six hours of sleep a night, and that's interrupted sleep. So many of them are interrupted five, six times a night. I know when my mom was caring for my dad, you're kind of always on alert. You're always listening for them to call for you. And so you never really quite go to sleep. And if you hear anything, you jump up thinking somebody's calling for you to help you. So I think people are just being been worn down in ways that even they don't recognize and understand. I hear you. And and I think about early in my career doing home visits, which is not something we do very much nowadays uh, in family medicine. We don't do those home visits as often as we used to do. We used to do a home visit to an older person almost every month just to see how they were going. And it told us so much about what was going on in their environment and who was looking after them and how they were living and and all the rest of it. We don't do that so much. Telemedicine somehow has made a bit of a difference to that because we are suddenly able to put the camera into their bedrooms or into their lounge rooms, wherever they happen to be, and we can see what's unfolding uh, all around them. So in many, many ways, you're right. We don't know enough about our patients. And one of the aspects we don't know about is who they're caring for. The other area that you've been involved in is in asynchronous care communication. Talk a little bit about that. What's that about and how did you come to that? Yeah, well, back when I was first dealing with my own situation as a patient from a a car accident, the internet was actually fairly new. This was the 90s. And I thought, well, couldn't we use this to help educate people? Because I would go to my physical therapy appointments and I'm a good student. I want to learn. I want to follow directions. I want to get better. Most people do want to get better. And I would, they'd show me the exercises. I'd go home. I thought I was doing them right. I'd come back and they'd tell me, well, you actually didn't do the exercises right. You forgot to point your toe down or you forgot to do this. And, and I'd be like, where on the stick figure drawing that you gave me <laughs> was it showing all of these little nuances that my working memory wasn't able to capture? And part of what I really found was that 
we know people forget about 80% of what they leave. So even if clinicians explain everything in plain language and clearly, which already often doesn't happen, we know by the time you walk out the door, you've forgotten about 80%. And then good luck the next day, or I mean, going home and usually telling your partner what you have to do, you get half of it wrong. And so this is a way to really deliver resources to people, whether that's through a platform and give them video or multimedia or a chat bot or interactive voice response phone calls. It's a way where we can get resources to people so that they can look at them in their own time, absorb them so that it can reiterate anything that we know they they need to learn and understand about their care. It can also really help with sense-making because that's a big problem. We're often giving people just instructions like, oh, just blindly follow these instructions and hopefully you'll be better. But they usually need more sense-making around like, well, why am I doing this? And is this really helping me? And why does it help me? And that's very hard to do, especially in these short clinical encounters that we have here. And so all of those types of things can be addressed as well as something actually work better when there's not a power dynamic or social dynamic happening. Even if you have a great relationship with your clinician, there's a dynamic there and you might feel embarrassed to ask questions about sex or I've had people tell me they're even embarrassed when they're having surgery to ask questions about scars because they feel like, oh, that's too vain if I ask what my incision scar is going to look like after it heals. And then let alone things like housing insecurity, food insecurity, abuse, other issues, people feel much safer kind of disclosing these things in a virtual setting where there's nobody sitting there judging them or commenting on it or just watching that person's reaction. And in terms of giving people time and space to think about what they're doing, when we look at shared decision-making, one of the problems is, yes, you can give people during a clinical encounter and their family members, oh, here's all your options. We should think about your values and preferences, but they really need time to process it. So giving them like a decision aid that they can go home and view and watch and absorb and that other members of their family can absorb, it really gives them time to process it instead of making these sometimes bad decisions in a stressful moment. And so there's a ton of benefits to this. And we really saw that acutely, frankly, with family caregivers. If you're getting a ventricular assist device and then your partner has to take care of you, that is a huge job. Or if you're getting a transplant, there's that diet there. And the messaging really needs to be different for the patient and the family caregiver. And you need them both to be honest with you about what they feel capable of doing. So this type of asynchronous care communication, I think really builds relationships. It builds trust. It's a way to educate people, reiterate information, and really give them that safety and security and help them with that sense-making as well. So all of those are, are things that really play into technology can hurt or help. And it's really about, can we be smart about how we use it? And the way I've seen it used, it doesn't just improve the patients and the family's life, but it also improves the practice and the experience for the clinician. They find, oh, people are coming in And they know now how to talk to me about their values and their preferences, 
they understand something or we've normalized some of these questions and they feel more comfortable asking questions or have more intelligent questions. And if you really meet their informational needs, they're also less likely to do a Google search and maybe find good information, but maybe find inaccurate or old or or wrong information. So there's just tons of benefits to working with patients this way. It's really a way to extend the care to the patient and family. I think you're onto something there as well. If you think about it, if you buy, let's say, a television set from from a shop, there's such a thing as a cooling off period. So you can take the thing away. And if you're really not happy with it, a couple of weeks later, you can bring it back. Now, we don't have a cooling off period for surgery or some of these other things that we promote to our patients. We need an opportunity for them to reflect, don't we, in terms of what they feel about what we're about to do for them or to them or with them. And if they're not happy about it, then they need a chance to say, that's not for me, or I had another question, or how about the scar? Because let's face it, the scar is really important. Asynchronous communication is very important. And I was reminded when you were talking about another of our guests on this podcast, Ethan Butte, who talks about rehumanize your business. And what he suggests is that you send a video to the person that you are communicating with after the event or before the event, and you point out the things that you would like them to consider in a very respectful way. Somehow seeing your face, being honest, being upfront, makes it more likely that they will do what they're going to be comfortable with in the longer term. I think that's absolutely true. And I have seen these situations where even without that, I was doing a focus group for a back pain decision aid. And you know, you kind of feel your stomach drop sometimes when you see real people watch in and you're like, oh no, what are they going to think? And this one man was very silent through the whole thing. And finally, the moderator was like, hey, you haven't said anything. And his voice cracked and he almost broke into tears. And he said, I just can't imagine that one of my doctors would care about me enough to bother to send me a video like this that explains my back pain to me. And he's like, and I'm realizing from watching this that I'm depressed and that I've been depressed for a long time. And this this addresses that and I'm going to go talk to my doctor. But to your point about the video and personalizing it even more, one of the physical therapists that I work with, he's created really a social good care communication platform. And he gives his patients the videos for like SI joint or whatever activities, exercises they need to do for their rehab. But after he meets with them, he literally takes like 90 seconds and he shoots a video and he says, Hey, Sarah, when I saw you today, we talked about this, this, and this. You're going to see the videos that'll show you, remind you how to do the exercises. Remember, I want you to do them three times a day and blah, blah, blah. And then he even goes a step further. After those videos, he, he puts a funny video at the end, which is like an Easter egg. And it's something they joke about when he comes back in. But uh, a laugh that they share, but then they really feel cared for. Oh my gosh, he he cared enough to pick out this funny little video for me. And by the way, it also lets him know that, oh, they watched everything because if they got to that funny little video at the end, it means that they they watched all the other information that he basically prescribed to them. But the relationship building, I think, is huge because we keep talking about, oh, people need trust and they need relationships. And that's both for the providers 
and the patients, but really the relationships in many ways is more of the treatment than I think it is. Like people need to have a belief that what you're telling them to do will work, but we also really self-regulate through those interactions with our partners and our care providers. And so feeling cared for goes a long way toward feeling safe and feeling like you can participate in your care and, and really get through it. You said it beautifully, Jerry. Where can people find you? Where can they connect with you? What are your other projects? Yeah. So my two main projects are I co-founded an organization called the Difference Collaborative and the Difference Collaborative Alliance. And we are really working to raise awareness about family caregivers. So anybody can can contact me through the Difference Collaborative on the family caregiving front. And then also on the asynchronous care communication, I've really been partnering with this social good care communication platform called Decola. And so either of those are, are a great way to contact me. But I'm, I also try, I'm always looking to write about insights, about communicating, engaging, building relationships for my, for my writing and advocacy work, because I, I really do feel that we need to help all the stakeholders, right? It's not just about helping patients and the caregivers. It's also about making sure the clinicians feel like what they're doing is working and that they go home at the end of the day, knowing that people understood things and feel confident acting in their care. And I think that can go a long way to addressing burnout. So my whole thing is to bring all of these different communities together because they all interact with each other in different ways. In fact, with the difference class, actually researched nurses who are family caregivers and looked at how is that impacting them? Because just because you're a clinician and you know how to provide hands-on care doesn't mean that that's easy and goes smoothly, you know, when you're a family caregiver for someone. So I'm really looking at ways to bring everybody together with the Difference Collaborative. We're really trying to create a community of anybody who wants to build awareness or provide products or services for family caregivers. And then also on Decola, it's really about building a care community about finding and building resources for, for patients that all clinicians can use and really bringing everybody together there as well. So both the COLA and Difference Collaborative are the two best ways to get a hold of me. We'll make sure that we put all of those links on our show notes. Jerry Lynn Baumblatt, you are compassionate, you are caring, you're insightful. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us. You've given us so much to think about. Thank you so much for having me. This has been amazing. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.